Well, good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6 this morning? We're going to be continuing our series there. Somebody asked me this morning if I was ready, and I said, well, I don't know, maybe just, just barely this week, but we'll, uh, I'll do my best. I might be like those kids. I might not want to say anything. You're not that lucky. So if somebody asks you to define evil, what would you say? How would you describe evil? And if they ask you to point out some people or to name some people that you think are evil, who would you point to? Y'all are looking at me. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> well, maybe your mind would go to some of the kind of classic examples, I think, of evil, such as Adolf Hitler or maybe the Ku Klux Klan. I think those are pretty obvious examples of evil. Or maybe something more recent, like the 9-11 the terrorists or even Vladimir Putin. And the war that he is waging. I think those two are, are pretty obvious. But could evil be more insidious than that? Could it have a softer face? Could maybe this person be evil? Or what about these? Now that's not Patty Litza in the middle. I know it looks like Patty. <laughs> that's not Patty. But could evil have a softer face? Could, could these people, in fact, embody evil to some extent? Well, as we consider that, I, I think we should probably start by defining evil. And moral evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. Anything. It can be sin against God. It can be sin against other people. David, in Psalm 51, said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. On, uh, we mentioned the terrorist attacks on September 11th in 2001. President Bush spoke to the, to the people of America and he said, Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And I would agree. It was hatred driven by a religious system. And it was opposed to the God of the Bible. It was opposed to his nature, his good nature. So again, moral evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. And we live in a fallen world, so evil is all around us. But where did it come from? Where did evil come from? Some people will point the finger and blame God. They'll say, well, if your God created everything, then he created evil as well. Did God create evil? Is it, is it his doing? Well, evil is not a created thing at all. Follow me closely on this. Evil, it can't even exist on its own. Evil is the corruption of something good. All that God created was good. But then evil came and it corrupted it. I think probably the best way to illustrate this idea of evil being something that can't exist on its own is through a riddle. And it goes like this. 
I am weightless, but you can see me. Put me in a bucket and I'll make it lighter. What am I? I'm weightless, but you can see me. Put me in a bucket and I'll make it lighter. Well, watch the picture for a clue. What is it? It's a hole. It's a hole in the bucket. It's the corruption of something that's good. See, in a creation sense, God didn't create a hole. He created a bucket. And it was good. And evil came and corrupted the good thing that God made. But the hole can't exist without the bucket any more than a cavity can exist without a tooth. So evil is the corruption of something good. Now, when people go against the good that God intends for them, they become evil. And in our text this morning, we're going to see Nehemiah come face to face with evil. And that's not surprising because we've said again and again in this, in this book that when God is at work, we should ex expect opposition. But what is really remarkable to me in this text is that Nehemiah recognizes it again and again as evil. He sees it. He identifies it. And so he doesn't fall into the trap. How does he do that? That's what we want to really pay close attention to. So the message title this morning is Discerning Evil. And we'll cover Nehemiah chapter 6. And I made three parts to the outline. First of all, we'll see a physical trap in verses 1 through 9. And then secondly, a spiritual trap in verses 10 through 14. And finally, a feudal pact in verses 15 through 19. So I want to just read through the first section, and then we'll work our way through it as we usually do, and then we'll kind of take it a section at a time. So beginning in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to this time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then, the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hand. So we'll begin again with this physical trap that is set for Nehemiah. And it starts in verse 1 with, with our friends, quote unquote, Sanballat, 
Tobiah and Geshem. Remember Sambalat was the governor of Samaria, a region to the north, and Tobiah was likely the governor of Ammon, which is to the northeast of Jerusalem, and, and this Geshem, the Arab, is probably a governor of a territory to the south. These enemies surrounded Judea and, and the city of Jerusalem. They were on all sides, and they were occupying territory that formerly belonged to Israel, to the Jews. God had given this land to the Jews. But when they were taken captive by Assyria and Babylon, these other people were sent in to reoccupy the land. And so now they see the Jews returning. They see them rebuilding the temple, the walls of the city. And, and Jerusalem is their capital. It's the, the site of the temple. It's the dwelling place of God. And so when they see this happening, they feel very, very threatened. And so think back to what we covered, the different ways in which Sanballat and his, his cohorts tried to stop Nehemiah. When they first heard about the plans, they tried to discourage him with ridicule in chapter 2. And that didn't work. And then when they saw progress being made, they threatened him with military force. But Nehemiah became aware of their plan and they posted a defense. They had a sword in one hand, remember, and a, and a tool in the other as they worked. But now the wall is nearing completion and the enemies are getting desperate. And so what is their new plan? They're going to try to take out Nehemiah. One of the best ways to neutralize any group is to take out the leader of that group. Zechariah said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And you know what? That was a prophecy that Jesus referred to at the Last Supper. He said in Matthew 26, he said, this very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So the enemy wants to try to bring down Nehemiah, the leader. But here's a question. Is this a physical enemy or is it a spiritual enemy? Which is it? It's both. Once again, it's both. We keep seeing this theme. On the surface, it's these three guys. But behind the scenes, there's an even greater spiritual battle going on as Satan is a trying to oppose the work of God through the agency of these three men and their cohorts. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Behind all the evil we see in this world are spiritual forces of evil. And so, if we're going to confront that, we need to use, among other things, spiritual weapons. And so in verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent this message to Nehemiah. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. That sounds harmless enough, right? Maybe a little break after a lot of hard work, a little retreat. He says, but they were scheming to harm me. Well, the plain of Ono is a beautiful coastal plain about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah responds in, in verse 3, 
I'm, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Twice he refers to going down. Now, we normally think of, you know, up is north and, and down is south. We go up north, we go down south. But here it's not referring to direction so much as elevation. And Israel sits 2,500 feet or so above sea level. And these coastal plains would be only a few hundred feet above sea level. So Nehemiah would have had to descend down from the heights of Mount Zion, Jerusalem, to these coastal plains. And in doing so, there would have been plenty of opportunities for his enemies to ambush him and to kill him. And he recognizes this. He, Nehemiah had great discernment. And here's what discernment is. Discernment is the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them, not according to the outward appearance. The ability to see things as God sees them. We need discernment. We need discernment to distinguish light from darkness, truth from error, best from better, righteousness from unrighteousness, Purity from defilement, good from evil. All of those things require discernment. And Nehemiah showed this discernment. He knew that despite the outward appearance, this was not a friendly offer. He recognized it right away for what it is. It was a plot to kill him. It was evil. Don't you wish that every time you're confronted with a situation, you had that kind of discernment? that would let you just see right through it and know good and evil, better, best, truth and error. Maybe it comes across like this. Hey, why don't you stop by my place after work? Or I've got a great business proposition for you. Or do you think you could loan me some money until my next paycheck? Or I'd like you to vote for me in the next election. Or... God says that you should be doing this. All of those things require discernment. And the sad thing is many Christians suffer from a lack of discernment. They judge things based mostly on outward appearance rather than with godly discernment. So how do we get this discernment? Well, it comes from spiritual maturity. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They've gained discernment. It comes from a closeness to God through prayer and through a knowledge of his word. And we're going to see Nehemiah uh, demonstrate both of these as we continue through this text. So four times they sent me with the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. These guys are persistent. But Nehemiah is persistent in his discernment. He doesn't back down. He doesn't give in. And then, verse 5, the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. And you've appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. Well, this letter, it comes in 
it comes as an unsealed letter. It, it notes that specifically. And there's usually when scripture mentions little details, there's a reason for it. And so normally an official letter or a private letter would come with a clay seal on it and a stamp. So they would know this. Nobody has seen this. This is private. Remember a few weeks ago, I showed you this picture of a clay seal. It's called a, a bulla. And it's called the San Balat Bulla because it has his name and his son's name stamped on it. And, and this, this seal was discovered in 1962 in a cave in Samaria. And the cave of Abu Shinje, where they found not only this, but also a whole bunch of papyrus documents. And the bones of 205 people. And it's believed that this cave and those bones belong to Sanballat's descendants. That when Alexander the Great came and raided the area in 332 BC, that the descendants of Sanballat fled to this cave and there they were killed. And so here's this clay stamp with Sanballat's name on it and his son's name and documents pointing to him. Totally confirming the authenticity of the, of the biblical account. This was a real historical guy who was governor in Syria or in Samaria. Well, this was the, the very seal that would have been on a sealed document from Sanballat. But our text says it came in an unsealed letter. Well, what these enemies were doing was launching a campaign of misinformation. See... They wanted people to read and repeat what was in the letter. It wasn't a private communication. They wanted them to spread it around to the point that if people heard it enough times, they'd start to believe that it's true. Fast forward to today. We live in the information age, right? But you know what? It's as much the misinformation age. Because we're surrounded with misinformation. Now Jerusalem, the very site of this account of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. Jerusalem is the, the, the object of much misinformation today. There's a move by many Muslims to say that the first and second Jewish temples never existed in Jerusalem. Despite overwhelming evidence, archaeological evidence. At the um, Camp David summit in 2000, uh, PLO leader Yasser Arafat said that the Jewish temples were in the nearby cities of Nablus, not in Jerusalem. And in 2015, Muhammad Ahmed Hussein, he's the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. He claimed that a Jewish temple never existed on the Temple Mount. He said that an Islamic mosque stood on the Temple Mount, quote, since the world was created. <laughs> Adding that there was, quote, never anything other than a mosque on the Temple Mount. They spread these lies and they want people to repeat them because if people hear it often enough, they might start to believe that it's true. Well, guess what? A bunch of Media outlets, Semitic media outlets in the Middle East picked up on this. I'm sorry, anti-Semitic media outlets. They picked up on this and they started spreading this around. And in 2015, the New York Times even ran an article calling into question the certainty of the Jewish temples. 
This article was so misleading that they had to print two corrections in the days that followed. To this day, evil is at work spreading misinformation, feverishly trying to discredit the Bible and to thwart the plan of God. It's everywhere. Now, there's another form of misinformation that we're surrounded by today, and it's what's commonly referred to as spin. It's not outward lie necessarily. What is it? Well, it's a biased interpretation that's intended to influence public opinion. We see a lot of spin. The, the, the media, they are masters of spin. And you can listen to the same story from different sources and get a totally different idea of what seems to be the truth. I heard about the Smiths, who are a, a, they're proud of their family tradition. Their, their descendants, their ancestors came over on the Mayflower. And the descendants of these immigrants included some uh, Supreme Court justices, senators, Wall Street wizards, and, and they decided to compile a family history in the form of a book so that they could document their, their, you know, their ancestry for their children and their grandchildren. But there was just one problem, and that was how to handle the account of Great Uncle George. Great Uncle George was executed in an electric chair. And so what they did, they hired a fine author to write the family history. And he said, don't worry, I'll handle the information about great uncle George very carefully. And so when the book came out, it said this, great uncle George occupied a, sh a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. <laughs> he was attached to his position with the strongest of ties and his death came as a great shock. <laughs> what is that? That's spin, <laughs> right? There's truth in it, but it's meant to alter how you understand the account. Today's media, they're experts at spin, and they greatly influence public opinion. Well, Sanballat's letter came, or it claimed that Nehemiah's real purpose in rebuilding Jerusalem was to declare himself the king and to rebel against Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. Now remember, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He was like one of his most trusted advisors, and it's because of that trust that Artaxerxes sent him out with the authority and the resources to rebuild the temple. But see if his enemies could get Artaxerxes to question that trust. Well, they're basically accusing Nehemiah of sedition, trying to overthrow the king. And so, if that happened, if that word got around, then the threat is that Artaxerxes would send his army and would capture or kill Nehemiah. This was their plan. Or, if they could just get him to believe that this was a real threat, they could lure him into meeting with them where he, they could kill him themselves. So, Nehemiah, verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. So this was not only misinformation. It was, an, it was a personal attack on Nehemiah's character. And after all, Satan is what? A liar, a murderer, an accuser of the brethren. But God, God is our defender. 
We just sang that, right? God's our defender. Now notice that Nehemiah didn't mount an elaborate defense and try to prove Sanballat wrong point by point. He didn't do that. He didn't send out his own people to set their record straight. He simply told Sanballat, it's a lie. And he left it in God's hands to defend the truth. Now, if you're, if you're doing the 40-day prayer challenge with us, in day 15, author Mark Batterson writes this, I made a determination a few years ago that I wasn't going to defend myself against any and every criticism that comes my way. Life is too short, and the mission is too important, and God is my defender, and I believe he is contending for me if my cause is just and my heart is right. I need to remember, I need to take that to heart because there's like an attorney side of me that if I hear something untrue being said, an accusation, my first instinct is to jump in there and defend myself and defend the elders and defend the church and prove point for point why they're wrong. But you know what? God is our defender. See, Batterson calls this kind of you know, this kind of defense, sideways energy, a distraction, a waste of time. And so Nehemiah didn't fall for it. He stayed on task. And here's the point that we can take away from this. If we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. Leave that in his hands. And that's just what Nehemiah did. So verse 9 says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. See, at every turn in this book, we see Nehemiah praying. Frequently, I'm sorry, the frequency of Nehemiah's prayer was a sign of his spiritual maturity. And it was one of the keys to his wisdom and discernment. James 1.5, you know this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. That's not true just for Nehemiah. It's true for any of you. Do any of you lack wisdom? <laughs> I do. My goodness, I spent a lot of time praying this week. Lord, give me wisdom for this text. What is it saying? What does it have for us? We need God's wisdom. We need to ask God regularly, God, what are the motivations of this person? What is, is what he's saying true? How should I respond? I want to do the right thing, Lord, but I need your wisdom and discernment to figure it out. We need to come humbly before the Lord asking. But what's beautiful, I think, about this particular prayer is that Nehemiah didn't pray for God to deliver him out of his circumstances. He didn't say, Lord, raise up someone else to do this job. This is too hard for me. Get me out of here. He didn't even say, get them out of here. What did he say? Strengthen my hands. See, he prayed for strength to get through it, not to get out of it. He prayed, strengthen my hands. Now, too often I think we pray to get out of a situation. 
rather than to get through it. And, and this is another great point that Mark Batterson made in day four of our prayer challenge. And I'm going to put the quote up here for you because this is just right on the money. Batterson says this. I'm one slide behind. Here it is. He says, we're often so anxious to get out of difficult, painful, or challenging situations that we fail to grow through them. We're so fixated on getting out of them that we don't get anything out of them. We fail to learn the lessons God is trying to teach, to teach us, or cultivate the character God is trying to grow in us. We're so focused on God changing our circumstances that we never allow God to change us. Is that true? Is it, it's true of me. Lord, get me out of this. Rather than, God, give me the strength to get through this. And in the meantime, teach me what you want to teach me. You're letting me go through this for a reason. Help me to understand that reason. I don't want to have to repeat this lesson. I don't want to have to repeat that grade. I want to learn it. I want to get it right so that we can move on to other things. So I really appreciate that quote. Nehemiah prayed for strength to get through it, not out of it. He had discernment to recognize evil in the form of a physical trap, first of all. And now let's look at a spiritual trap in verses 10 through 14. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, uh, who was shut up in his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you by night. They're coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. So now we got a second plot. And this one comes all dressed up in, in spiritual pretense. And it's delivered through this man, Shemaiah. And we know little about Shemaiah other than what these verses tell us about him. But it's likely he was either a priest or he was the son of a priest because of the access he had to the temple. And he is a supposed prophet. One who speaks to man on behalf of God. And so Shemaiah uses his religious standing and his religious language to try and convince Nehemiah that he should come hide out with him in the temple. He says, let us meet in the house of God. I mean, it sounds so holy. He prophesies, he prophesies that men are coming to kill him. God's told me someone's coming for you. Come with me. Let's hide out in the temple, Nehemiah. Let's save you. But look what Nehemiah says. He didn't say, oh, good idea. <laughs> I, was, I was starting to wonder what I was going to do, where I was going to hide. No, Nehemiah says, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. This kind of makes me think of Vladimir Zelensky. You know what? Here his country and his city 
Kiev are being attacked by the Russians. And remember what he said the other week? He said, I'm not hiding. I'm on Bankova Street. I'm not afraid of anyone. He, he told the world where he was. He's like, here I am. I'm not afraid of you. What would it have said to the people if he would have fled his own country? But he's a leader. And Nehemiah was a leader. He says, am I going to go hide? What would, that, what, would, what would that say to the people? And who would be here to lead this important work of God, this project? I'm not going to go hide. So Nehemiah responds, I will not go. And in verse 12, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So Shemaiah sold his services to Tobiah and Sanballat. He's like a priest for hire. And he prophesies against Nehemiah. But he was a false prophet. Really, Shemaiah should have been killed for his false prophecy. That's what God's word said. Now, how did Nehemiah know that Shemaiah wasn't speaking on the behalf of God? How did he figure this out? He just looks right at him. That's, no, that's not right. You, you've, you've been hired. How did he know? The way he knew is simple. He knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. He knew that the law of Moses said that it's, it's, it's wrong. It's illegal for anybody other than a priest to go beyond the altar of burnt offering in the temple. And Nehemiah was not a priest. Numbers 18.7 says anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. So see, this was a, a, a plot to trip him up spiritually. To cause him to sin. To have him fall out of favor with God and with his countrymen. Maybe even to be killed. Ha, look, he went in the temple. We'll kill him. It'll be a holy thing. The word of God is the most important tool we have for knowing good from evil, right from wrong. It, it doesn't matter how charming or popular or eloquent or influential or spiritual a person is. If they tell you or others to do something that's against God's word, it's evil. It's evil. And so Nehemiah saw right through that because he knew the word of God. Now earlier I showed you these pictures of three people and I asked if they could be evil. They certainly don't look evil, do they? They look like nice people. Who are they? Well, the first is Alexis McGill Johnson. I don't know if you know who she is or recognize her face, but she is the recent president of Planned Parenthood. Now, they can dress up this organization with an attractive leader and use pleasant labels like provider of reproductive health services and say that's their, their primary pursuit. But this organization is still responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of unborn children every single year. They have killed more people than Hitler and the 9-11 terrorists and Putin combined times a number. It's pure evil, even if it doesn't look like it. What about these other two people? 
Well, they're Annie, they're Annie Laurie Gaylor and Dan Barker, and they're married, and they're the co-presidents of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Their goal is to make sure that people no longer see the United States as a Christian nation. They oppose any faith-based initiative, such as Bible studies in federal prisons, disaster relief by Christian organizations, chaplains on universities, nativity scenes or the Ten Commandments, or even a Christmas tree on public property. It has to be called a holiday tree, not a Christmas tree. They are opposed to crosses on war memorials, prayer in schools, religious holidays, clergy tax benefits, and on and on and on. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But this couple won't stand for that. Now, do they look evil? No, they look like wonderful people. Do they oppose the things of God? Yes. Are they evil? Absolutely. They're going against the word and the will of God. And we got to be able to see through the pleasant exterior and see that as God sees that. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the reality of discernment. Americans have so fallen for the celebrity culture that they're more interested and attracted to how people look and how they sound than what they stand for. Again, discernment, the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them, not according to their outward appearance. We need discernment. Tamaya and Sanballat hired a religious hitman in Shemaiah. He looked great on the surface, but again, his goal was to get Nehemiah to sin and to have the power of God come against him and for him to fall out of favor with the people for them to take his life. But Nehemiah didn't fall for this spiritual trap because he knew the word of God and he stayed close to the Lord. This gave him the discernment he needed. Verse 14, he says, Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. He doesn't retaliate. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He doesn't exercise personal vengeance. What does he do? He hands them over to the Lord. Here, God, remember them. <laughs> that doesn't mean, like, God bless their soul. You know, he's like, you remember what they did. And he's leaving room for God's wrath. That's what Romans 12, 19 said. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will deal with them. Nehemiah didn't have to. Do you tend to retaliate against your enemies? Do you try to settle the score to get even? I know it's a temptation, isn't it? But we're not to do that. Nehemiah simply says, remember them, oh my God, and he leaves room for God's wrath. So this was a spiritual plot or, or the spiritual trap. Let's look finally at a, at a feudal pact in verses 15 through 19. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 
Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Johohanan, and had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Benakiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Well, these, these walls had been laying in ruins for over a hundred years. And now they've been restored in just 52 days. And over and over again, Nehemiah's enemies tried to, tried to use ridicule and military threats and, and plots to try and stop the work. Yet it was done in a, in a remarkable 52 days. Now, these threats were designed to frighten them, intimidate them, and cause them to lose heart. But look what actually ended up happening. Look at verse 16. When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. It backfired on them, didn't it? The very thing. We want to make him afraid. We want to intimidate him. Who ended up being afraid? They did. It backfired. Listen to Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 14. It says, He who is pregnant with evil and conceives trouble gives birth to disillusionment. He who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. Isn't that just what happened? It recoiled. It backfired on these enemies of, of Nehemiah and enemies of God. It was a futile pact. Now, Nehemiah was a great man of faith. He was diligent. He was a great leader. But that by itself wouldn't have gotten this job done. It was only by the power of God that they completed this project in the time that they did. Even his enemies recognized this. That's what made them afraid. They said, that is such an incredible achievement. There's no way that ordinary men and women could have done that. That had to be the hand of God. And so at this, they were afraid. And this is just what Nehemiah prayed for. He's, he said in the beginning, the God of heaven will give us success. And the God of heaven did. He gave them great success. Now, there's one more little troubling thing in these last verses. Nehemiah, he reveals that there are a number of Jewish nobles who were conspiring along with his enemies. See that there? And these were from the tribe of Judah. Of all people, the lineage to the Messiah. And they, they're betraying their own countrymen and aligning themselves with Tobiah, it says they had this ongoing communication via letter back and forth. And it was this coordinated effort between these Jewish nobles and Tobiah to subvert Nehemiah's work, but more importantly, to subvert God's work. They joined forces with the enemy. These guys were like wolves in sheep's clothing. One of these named here actually was one that Nehemiah identified as one working on the wall. So even while he's working on the wall... He's sending his letters. He's like a little, you know, double agent communicating with the enemy and, and bringing his, 
you know, his word back like propaganda. But nevertheless, God's work prevailed. See, when people and nations join forces against God and against his will for them, it is not a winning formula. It's not going to prevail. It will never succeed. Let me read you Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And then listen to God's response. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where's that? Jerusalem. Right where Nehemiah is building the walls. It's talking, why are you conspiring? You know, God doesn't feel threatened by this. He, <laughs> look at these guys. He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the Russians conspire? Why do the Muslims conspire? Why do the atheists conspire? Because it's evil at work. Anything going against the Lord and his word and his truth and his goodness is evil. It's evil at work. And God laughs at them. He's not intimidated. And in the end, those who continue to oppose the Lord and his people will be destroyed by the Lord. It's a futile pact. So why do we then as Christians get so worked up and so afraid when we see these things going on, this saber rattling? Oh, they're going to, we're no longer a Christian nation. They're going to, yeah. What's God doing? He go, he's laughing at them. They will not prevail. Well, wrapping this up, Moral evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. Oh, you let me get behind on the slide. There we go. Moral evil is anything that contradicts the holy nature of God. It's all around us. It's even in us. The only thing that saves us is the moral perfection of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us through faith in his work on the cross. That's the only thing we got to go on. We need discernment as Christians. We need the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them, not according to outward appearance. Nehemiah had this discernment. And we saw discernment comes from spiritual maturity. It comes through a close relationship with the Lord. It comes through prayer. It comes through a deep knowledge of his word. That's why we gather together, guys. We pray together. We encourage one another. We study the word of God. So we might be spiritually mature, so we might have discernment, so we might not fall into some of the same traps. When we face opposition, let's pray for strength to get through it, not to get out of it. I think that's what God wants. He wants, he's allowed us to encounter that opposition, whatever it is, the loss of a job, a cancer diagnosis, an accident, the loss of a loved one. He has allowed us to experience that. And what is he doing with it? He's working it together for what? Our good. Our good. Let's not pray to get out of that. God, get me out of this working for good. 
No, get me through it. Help me to learn the lesson you have for me. And then finally, God gives the victory and his purpose will prevail. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, we're just saying no weapon forged against us will stand. God's purpose and his church and you will prevail. But you have to know that the enemy has a lot of traps set for you and me too. He does. Many of them come in attractive packages like pretty girls, handsome men, lucrative deals, attractive offers, tasty beverages, enticing material things, smooth sounding speech. Are they good or are they evil? Are you able to discern that? See, we need that maturity. We need that discernment. The enemy wants to lead us into a trap. He wants to lead us into sin. He wants to thwart the work of God in our lives. And so we need spiritual maturity so we can skillfully discern good and evil. So we can avoid the traps of the enemy. Just like Nehemiah did. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have called us out of this evil world and into a relationship with you. Most of us anyway, God, you've called us. Others, you're still calling. You're inviting us to place our faith in you. The only hope we have, God. And when we do, you cleanse us through faith in the finished work of your son on the cross. You wash us completely clean. You impute his righteousness to us. You trade our sin and our condemnation for Jesus' righteousness and salvation. You give us life, God. God, along with that, you call us to walk in righteousness. And I pray that you would strengthen us for that walk. God, I pray that you give us great wisdom and discernment that we too could look at the situations we encounter and see them as you would see them, to see the good and to see the evil. God, help us to be strong, mature, complete, lacking nothing. And draw us close to you in prayer and worship and the study of your word. God, we want you to do a great work through us individually and as a church body. And so we ask for your help and your strength in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.